The message of the tree of life is it's this simple. The solution is this simple. We need to go back to our foundations. Everything the adversary does is to take God out, take God out of our art, out of our movies, out of our music, out of our science, out of our education. What happened when God and biblical principles were barred from our schools? One excellent indicator is the SAT test, the Scholastic Aptitude Test. Prior to 1962-63, SAT scores bounced around the same general level and had been stable for decades. But following the removal of God from education, scores plummeted. I think President McKay's warning actually came to pass. When I was a teenager, there was this Sunday where our Sunday school class needed a substitute teacher. And my dad was the Sunday school president, and so he stepped in to fill in and teach our class. And we had a good discussion just asking different questions about life and just basically anything we wanted to talk about. But he asked a question, I remember at one part, that has stuck with me the rest of my life, and I've never forgotten it. He asked all of us kids in the class, he said, who is the happiest person in the entire universe? And of course, the kids are like, it's God. God is the happiest person. And he was like, okay, do you really believe that? I mean, God spends all of his day serving people and helping people. And he doesn't listen to bad, inappropriate music or go to inappropriate places or inappropriate parties. Like he doesn't do any of these things that the world says is fun. Do you really think he's really happy? Is he really the happiest person? And I remember, I don't remember what happened next in the class, but I remember that sticking in my mind and I really thought about it because I started thinking, do I really believe this? And I know if I really believe it by how I act, right? Do I really act that way? And is kind of a similar, in a similar vein, I remember so many family scripture studies that we would have and my dad saying, the scriptures will lead you to so much joy. Like if you could just feel what it feels like to be in God's presence for just a few minutes, it's trumps every kind of dish you could eat or vacation you could go on or movie you could watch. And I remember just sitting there looking at him thinking, I don't really know what he's talking about for sure. Like, I guess, but just it was intangible. It didn't make a lot of sense. And it took a lot of years of some trials and different experiences before I really started to understand what he was talking about and understand, wait a minute, the whole point of this gospel, the whole point of everything God is asking us to do, and I'm not talking about just general commandments. I'm talking about the whole way God set up the universe and nature and the world is actually all about joy and happiness. And there's a reason for that. And ironically, Satan, everything the adversary does is try to convince us of the opposite. He says, if we just get rid of God, if we just get rid of Christianity, if we just get rid of those scriptures, we could get rid of guilt and shame and, and sin and, and dysfunctional families, right? Satan always makes the solution the problem. But if we turn to the scriptures and give it a try, like actually give this a try and test what it's saying, I think we would actually discover for real that God is the happiest person. My dad didn't love the scriptures because they were scriptures. 
what he was searching for was the joy. And he had found that joy. He had found that feeling. He, w- he would say to us so many times, if you could just feel what it feels like to come into the presence of God, there is so much joy and peace and, and nobleness and love. He said it just trumps everything else in the world. And you would do anything to stay in that presence. And it wasn't until later in my life that I realized that. And as I was preparing for this lesson on the tree of life, that experience came back and I began thinking, you know what? My dad and Lehi hit on something about what the purpose of life is and how to obtain that joy that I think all of us can better understand. So as we open up the chapters of Lehi's vision of the tree of life, this is in 1 Nephi 8, uh, we might ask ourselves, well, what is the whole point of this vision? The whole message of the vision of the tree of life is about being faithful and obedient to the word of God, regardless of peer pressure, regardless of temptations, regardless of anything else that happens in the society. Let's remember here just a little bit of backstory, because the context of this is what? Lehi and his family have been forced to leave Jerusalem. They've sacrificed everything to get the scriptures. And Lehi finally has gotten the scriptures. And for the first time, he's beginning to discover who he is and his genealogy and the covenants. And then he has this vision and he has this vision about wandering and sorrow and and crying out to God for mercy and how he's able to find joy again. So if we look into the scriptures, 1 Nephi chapter 8 is where we're at. And we look at verse 7. Lehi says that he finds himself in a dark and a dreary waste. In the next verse, in verse 8, it talks about him traveling for hours, many hours in darkness, until he starts crying to the Lord for mercy. Now, what is this all about? If you think about it, remember, Lehi, even in the circumstances of his life, he's a very, very good man, but he's lost. He, he has no identity. Before he was able to get the brass plates, he had no scriptures. He, he was lost in the world. He didn't understand what was going on. And he had misery, just like it describes here in this dream. He's wandering. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't have joy. And so what does it take for him to get that joy? He begins crying out to God for help. And what does God do? He opens up this path to this tree. So this is in verse 11. He says, I did go forth and partake of the fruit thereof. Now, this tree, Nephi later, when Nephi has this vision, he calls it the tree of life. Now, where have we heard of the tree of life before? I want you to think about this. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This takes us back to the beginning, right? And the story of the beginning is the story of God creating a world of perfect order and harmony. There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no death. There's no contention and sin. And what happens is, though, because man transgresses laws, that perfection and that order begins to decay and begins to fall away. And so from the time of Adam's fall to the present, instead of this evolution of progressing as a society where we're continually getting better and stronger and more advanced, Instead, from a scriptural worldview, ever since the beginning, we've been de-evolving. We've been degressing. We've been um, just falling into greater levels of misery and sadness. If we apply this to ourselves just a little step further, um, we're all broken and lost. (laughs) 
If you read Moses 7, verse 36, this is the vision that Enoch is seeing. But the Lord talks about how the earth that we live in is the most wicked earth of all the earths created by God, that there had not been so great wickedness on any of God's creations than the wickedness on this very earth. And my dad would sometimes emphasize to this in family scriptures as well. He would tell us this simple thought. We live on the most wicked earth. And then he would say, prophets have taught, we live at the most wicked time on the most wicked earth. So he'd say, we live on the most wicked earth at the most wicked time. Are you comfortable? If you're feeling at ease, like you fit into this environment, you might want to think again, because this is not a good spot to be. But instead, if you're feeling like Lehi, feeling like there has to be something more, I'm wandering, I don't know what the answer is, God has an answer. So Lehi finds joy, right? He's able to find the tree. He's able to find that answer after crying to the Lord for mercy. He finds the truth. And his first response when he finds the truth is what? He is just filled with such joy. He wants all of his family to find the truth. And then he sees multitudes and multitudes of people represented by, you know, all of us on the earth. He sees all these people and his heart just goes out to all of us. He wants to help those people find the truth. And what is that truth? Well, he sees this rod of iron, right? So this rod of iron, there's this path that gets to the tree and then there's this rod of iron. What does that rod of iron symbolize? Well, later on, when Nephi has this vision, we understand that the rod of iron is a representation of the word of God. So how do you navigate your way in this lost world? How do you figure out um, how to sort out what's supposed to happen in your life, how you're supposed to live? The word of God is the solution. But then a problem comes into Lehi's dream, right? There's not just this beautiful tree with this path and this rod, and you just got to go along the path and cling to the rod, right? There's these mists of darkness. There's these fountains of filthy water that are drowning people. There's this great and spacious building of people mocking and taunting and saying, what are you doing? You're crazy. Um, Come join us, right? And he sees that only those who are clinging to the rod, clinging to the word of God. I think that word clinging is so interesting. Only those who are clinging actually make it to the tree. So where do we see mists of darkness trying to obscure the path, trying to obscure the scriptures in our day? Well, next week, when we talk about Nephi's vision of the tree of life, he sees the great apostasy. We're going to get into some of the history there. Um, And of course, what was the point of the great apostasy? We talked about this last week, taking the scriptures away from the people, making the scriptures illegal. And what does that do? It leads to these mists of darkness. It leads to destruction and ruin. We'll talk more about that. But I want to talk for a moment about our day and why this matters. And to do that, I want to tell a story about uh, some of the our presidents of the church and um, an experience that they had with the Bible and prayer being removed from school. So in the United States of America, in 1962, there was a landmark case. And in this case, the Supreme Court decided that New York public school officials could not prescribe this voluntary prayer to be offered at the beginning of class. They said it's not allowed anymore. 
and Boy K. Packer was a general authority at the time, and President David O. McKay was the president of the church. And Boy K. Packer had this to share about President McKay's response to this ruling. Quote, just a year after I had been called as a general authority, I saw President McKay very agitated. I had not seen him that way before. We were in a meeting in the temple with all of the general authorities in October 1962 prior to the general conference. When President McKay came in, he was obviously very agitated. And when it came his time to speak, he told us that the Supreme Court had made a decision announcing the prohibition of prayer in the public schools, end quote. President McKay actually later publicly commented on this landmark case when he said, quote, the Supreme Court of the United States has made it unpatriotic for public schools to teach your children to pray. By making that unconstitutional, the Supreme Court severs the connecting cord between the public schools of the United States and the source of divine intelligence, the creator himself. Evidently, the Supreme Court misinterprets the true meaning of the First Amendment and are now leading this Christian nation down the road to atheism, end quote. Now, that was a controversial comment to make. And a lot of people said, President McKay, you're not a lawyer. What right do you have to say what's constitutional and unconstitutional? And should we really even allow religion and prayer? And, and later, of course, this case led to the Bible being removed. So the Bible, should that even be allowed in the public schools? And is it really that big of a deal? I mean, the children can be taught at home. They go to church on Sunday. There's lots of time outside of school, right? Well, President Dallin H. Oaks was at the time just a young lawyer, and this was some of his reasoning, which made sense. There were a lot of people who felt that way. He said, quote, I reasoned that the school prayer case was correctly decided because I interpreted the school prayer decision to forbid only state-authored and state-required prayers rather than forbidding school prayers altogether, end quote. So President Oaks, he actually ended up even writing an article saying the decision was correct, and the church allowed that to be published in the Improvement Era. That was something that actually President McKay was really good on. In this case and other cases, um, he allowed both sides to speak. Let's have the dialogue. Let's talk about it. However, President Oaks later wrote in his memoir that years later, he completely changed his mind and sided now with President McKay. And this is why, and I think this is really fascinating. Listen to what he said. He says, quote, what I learned from this experience was that my worldly wisdom in writing approvingly of the school prayer case on the quote unquote facts of the decision was just a small footnote to history compared with the vision of a prophet who saw and described the pernicious effects of that decision in the years to come. Exercising prophetic vision, President McKay saw that the school prayer case, which I reasoned to be defensible and probably even essential as a ruling on the facts before the court, would set in motion a chain of legal and public and educational actions that would cause religion to be separated from education and lead to the current hostility toward religion that threatens religious liberty in our society. For me, that was a powerful learning experience on the folly of trying to understand prophetic vision 
in terms of worldly wisdom, end quote. What I love about President Oaks's humility here is describing this journey that I think so many of us can go on on different issues where you have a president of the church who is inspired, who's looking at current events and recognizing, wait a minute, we cannot separate God. We cannot take prayer. We cannot take the scriptures out of our education. President McKay understood what Lehi understood, what other righteous men have understood. You cannot navigate those mists of darkness. You cannot navigate these filthy waters, all of these wandering strange roads in our day without the word of God. And it is critical. It needs to be part of our society, part of our education. And no matter how controversial that may be and strange and uh, different in our day and in our current politically correct climate, President Oaks expresses something profound of recognizing, he says, the pernicious effects that that case had on America. Now, I want to share what one of those consequences is based on statistics. So there was a man named David Barton who pulled together statistics watching what happened after prayer and the Bible were taken out of school. He used government statistics and he showed that beginning in 1962, that's the year that religious principles were first separated from the public schools, was the year that a huge decline started in our youth, education, families, and the nation. We're going to play a clip from David Barton here. Washington warned that excluding religious principles from education and students would result in a loss of morality. Statistics now confirm the accuracy of his warning. Consider the category of pregnancies for unwed teenage girls. For decades prior to 1962-63, birth rates for unwed teen girls had remained relatively stable. But with the court's exclusion of religious principles from students, birth rates for unwed teenage girls immediately skyrocketed by 400%. Similarly, birth rates for junior high girls had also been low. But following the court's removal of religious principles, pregnancies for girls ages 10 through 14 shot up by 460%. America now has the highest teen pregnancy rate of any nation in the industrialized world. Sexually transmitted diseases among students also reached previously unrecorded highs. Notice how low the rates had been. Notice the point where religious principles were removed and look at the dramatic increase that followed. Strikingly, moral measurements for students broke violently in the wrong direction following the court's 1962-63 policy of enforced secularism. This is a strong correlation. Perhaps it's merely coincidental, but it certainly is clear and striking. Consider the next category in which public policy long maintained the use of biblical principles the category of our parents, that is, our families. What happened with the exclusion of biblical principles? Consider the area of marital stability. According to federal statistics, the divorce rate had been steadily declining for years and even decades prior to 1962-63. But then notice what happened. Religious principles were excluded from public policy and the divorce rate skyrocketed. Suddenly, the United States found itself number one in the world in the divorce rate. Similarly, the number of single-parent families also exploded, reaching almost triple its previous level, and unmarried couples living together increased tenfold, soaring by over 1,000%. In fact, having now excluded biblical principles, some American policymakers even became confused about how to define something as simple as marriage. 
Was it to remain the union of a man and a woman? Or should it become that of a man and a man? Or a woman and a woman? Or five men and a woman, or vice versa? Or is it perhaps an older man and an adolescent girl? Or any of the other possible combinations? What remarkable changes have occurred since biblical values were excluded from public policies on the family? The third category over which God's assistance had been petitioned in that unconstitutional prayer was our teachers, that is, our schools. What happened when God and biblical principles were barred from our schools? One excellent indicator is the SAT test, the Scholastic Aptitude Test, an academic test for college-bound high school students that has been used in America since 1926. Prior to 1962-63, SAT scores bounced around the same general level and had been stable for decades. But following the removal of God from education, scores plummeted year after year after year after year. Other school-related statistics showed similar adverse changes. Consider finally the fourth category, that of our country or the nation. Just from a common sense perspective, what do you think will happen when a policy is adopted that says, you can't see the Ten Commandments, things like don't steal and don't kill? You might obey them. We can't have that. Logic dictates that to exclude such principles and values will affect behavior. Apparently it did. In fact, George Washington, and yet another remarkable insight from his excellent farewell address, accurately predicted what has now occurred. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert? Washington warned that if the sense of religious obligation were separated from the public arena, that there would be no security for life or property. The very things most often touched by violent crime. In America, violent crime had remained stable for decades. But following the removal of religious principles, violent crime soared over 470%, with the United States becoming the world's leader in crimes committed. There are many additional examples of marked changes in national statistical measurements following 1962-63. Significantly, the founders understood that America could prosper only under God's blessings and therefore refused to separate his principles from any aspect of public affairs. To me, those statistics are fascinating to see because maybe if there was just one or two, right? Maybe if it was just SAT scores or just divorce or teen pregnancies, you'd think, well, maybe. But when you notice that steady decline in so many areas of our life and thought, you start to think, wait a minute, I think President McKay's warning actually came to pass. President Hinckley was actually later asked by the press in 2000 about that case, and this is what he said, quote, we took a terrible step backwards some years ago. I don't know whether we'll ever recover from it, end quote. So again, these are the words of inspired leaders who have prophetic vision and are emphasizing the very message of Lehi's vision of the tree of life, the essential nature of the word of God as that rod. We have to cling to that rod in our day and age. Now, that clip that we played from David Barton comes from a longer video called America's Godly Heritage, and we're going to link to that in the resources for this podcast. 
But I just wanted to share a little bit about how this story is is not just a story of, oh, here's President McKay's comments on prayer being removed and here's these statistics, but that story actually completely changed our entire family before I was born. Um, So when my dad came home from his mission, my dad was planning to do a college career in basketball and um, had just everything figured out in life, right? And he was handed a copy of David Barton's America's Godly Heritage. And as he watched it, the point of that film, the point of David Barton's uh, production and, and those statistics, the point that David Barton tries to make is that there has been this effort to take God out of our society. And that just hit my dad like a ton of bricks. And it was at that moment, he suddenly was filled with this passionate desire of understanding, wait a minute, Everything the adversary does is to take God out, take God out of our art, out of our movies, out of our music, out of our science, out of our education. The solution to all of our problems is to put God back, back in. Because think about this for a moment. When you go and you study the history of communist Russia, communist China, you find a very kind of almost humorous pattern. Those Atheistic governments are terrified of this little black book, this little book called the Bible. They're so terrified of it. They will hunt people down. They won't let anyone print it. It's, it's this huge battle to get rid of the Bible. Well, what's so scary about this little black book? I mean, it's a little book. <laughs> um, and yet it's what they're more afraid of than almost anything else. What do they know about the Bible that we're missing? What do they know about the scriptures that's so important that maybe we have forgotten? And we've definitely forgotten it. Um, In 2022, there was a study called the State of the Bible Study, and it found that, quote, there has been an unprecedented drop in the percentage of Bible users in the United States. That means those who use the Bible at least three to four times each year on their own. In every study since 2018, Bible users have accounted for between 47 and 49% of American adults. However, the 2022 data showed a 10% decrease from the same time in 2021. That means nearly 26 million Americans reduced or stopped their interaction with scripture in the past year, end quote. Go read the whole study. It's actually very, very frightening what is happening in our society. And that is just the Bible. Um, Our literacy of the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price isn't frankly doing too much better. We need to do better because how are we doing? Well, if you look at our statistics, you have Utah ranking in the top 10 states in the United States for depression. We should be doing better than that. Based on current assessments coming from statistics inside the church, there is indication that we may be losing 75% of millennials in the church. Our pornography addiction is rampant statistics. This includes members. We have worldwide Christian persecution going on the rise. You have freedom and rights being increasingly lost in Europe and Asia and America. You have the United States having the sixth highest divorce rate in the world. 
and nearly 1 million reported abortions per year. If you just look at our statistics, we're not doing very good. We're not avoiding those mists of darkness. This this is Lehi's vision. He's seeing these people wandering into these roads and, and you can feel Lehi's pain. You can feel him just crying out, I know the answer. I know how to find joy. Guys, we don't have to go down this road. Let's try a different strategy. So just as a personal testimony to this um, from our own family's experiences, um, first, first I'll start with my dad before sharing my own, but uh, my dad would often talk about how, you know, he grew up in an active home and reading the scriptures and everything. But when he was a BYU student, uh, he would often go to DI and with whatever little money he had saved up, he would buy every prophet book, every book written by a president of the church that he could find to start building this library. And he did build a huge library. But as he began studying these books in college as just a young student, he started coming across all of these teachings that he hadn't heard before or hadn't really read for himself, teachings on music standards, teachings on birth control, teachings on history and government and and science and just all of these different uh, teachings that helped him navigate and and the light bulb started going on for him. And he started thinking, wait a minute, why haven't I heard this before? This provides so many answers. This is where the section on our website, the Joseph Smith Foundation website called the FAQs actually comes from. Um, We started uploading all of those quotes that had been gathered over the years by topic here. Okay, here's science, the last days, health, music, um, home and family, education, and started organizing. This is what the prophets and the scriptures teach on those issues. And what he found and what others have found is there's so much clarity. There's so many answers. We just don't know what's out there. And my own personal experience with this is that I grew up with all of this knowledge. So I grew up I had the easy way. I had the easy road, right? So I grew up with all this knowledge, but I had to take that step of actually saying, okay, I, I need to take the time to study this and actually ponder to get that iron rod, get that firm foundation. And a couple of years ago, I started really trying to intensely study Joseph Smith's teachings and it changed my life. It was just incredible. One month I found Joseph Smith's teachings all about discerning spirits. And all of a sudden, all of these answers, all of these solutions to problems that I was seeing in the lives of friends, in in some other circumstances that were going on around me, it was just like, bam, here's the answer. Here's what to do about it. Here's how to separate light from darkness. Here's how to discern. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is been sitting here the whole time. And then the next month I was studying Joseph Smith's teachings to the Relief Society. And that one really humbled me because as I was sitting there, I thought I I was studying and Joseph Smith was talking about this is the role of women. These are their weaknesses. These are their strengths. This is what you got to be careful of. This is how the, the role of a wife in the home. And I remember sitting there in our little sunroom that we have at our house and just looking out the window and thinking, I grew up my whole life thinking oh, I'm really good. Like I, I don't endorse like kind of feministic ideas and, and I'm really grounded in the scriptures when it comes to women's roles. And I started realizing, oh my goodness, I have so much to change, but that was good. That humbling experience was good because it led me to find answers that I needed. And those answers led me to joy. It changed my life. And really that's what we're doing here is we're talking about the Book of Mormon. It's all about going back to that iron rod. Why? 
Why are we doing this? Not just because, oh, we want to become like God or God has asked us to. It's because it is the solution to joy. It is the answer. So it is absolutely critical. I have talked to so many parents over the years, many, many years, so many parents who have cried to me for hours about their college students going to college, their return missionaries coming home from a mission, and then a year or two later leaving the church, taking off their garments, or just struggling with their testimonies. And so many times I've found this interesting trend where I've often had people blame other sources. We, we, it's so easy to blame, oh, this corruption at college campuses. You know, it's BYU is a problem, or this university is a problem, or it's just the media and the music. And, and I'm not downplaying the attacks that are on our youth. No, absolutely not. But we have to realize they're just a symptom of the problem. They're just a symptom revealing to us that we're at a state as a people where our youth are not being educated and equipped against false doctrine. Our homes are weak. We're, we're losing our founding moorings. We're losing that clinging to the iron rod. The message of the tree of life is it's this simple. The solution is this simple. We need to go back to our foundations because the foundation is solid. The foundation is not going to move. And I can testify to that. The foundation that is in the word of God is unchangeable. It's undeviating and it works. The Lord's way works. It's simple. We just need to turn back to it. And once we are able to turn back and once we're able to find the tree, just like Lehi, we need to help our family gain the tree, but then we need to help others. And that's what happens to Lehi. He sees numberless concourses of people trying to obtain the path. They're struggling to get closer. Well, why is God showing Lehi the world? Why is he showing him all of these people that are struggling and, and getting lost or losing their way? Well, because what we're going to see in the Book of Mormon is that Lehi and his family were given a mission by God to go and save those people, to go bring them the scriptures. That's why we have the Book of Mormon today. It's because Lehi found the tree of life. He found the path and he and his descendants wrote a book to help us find the path as well. We have the same mission. We need to be faithful as well. Millions have died so that we can have these scriptures. Millions have sacrificed. And too often, I see too many people, we're, we're tossing them aside. I toss them aside. I, I thought I was appreciating the gospel. I thought I loved the gospel. But in so many ways, I was not clinging to that rod in the way that I should. I, I needed to do better. And when I did better, my entire life changed. We need to repent as a people. We need to take President Benson's counsel to take the Book of Mormon more seriously and then flood the earth with the Book of Mormon. It is our only hope and that solution will work. The rod of iron will get us to the tree of life. The last chapter in the section for this lesson is 1 Nephi chapter 10, and that is Lehi's counsel to his sons. After he sees the tree of life, um, he gives them this short discourse, this short family scripture study, if you will, and he gives them a few points. And I want you to think about these points that he gives his children in light of what we've been talking about with the tree of life. Lehi talks to his children about how all mankind is lost. We're all lost. We are all struggling and we all need help. Every single one of us. 
And Lehi talks about how Jesus Christ was literally sent to show us the way. But Jesus Christ was really, he was, he was rejected. That message was rejected and the house of Israel was scattered all over the world into Europe, into Asia, into North and South America, everywhere. But Lehi emphasizes to his children that God had made a promise to the fathers of the house of Israel that their children would get a chance to get those scriptures, would get a chance to get back to that rod of iron. And, and he emphasizes to his children that message and to go back to those founding moorings. We are those children today. This is us. We are right here at this crossroads ourselves. This is why the Book of Mormon is for a day. And so I would just encourage all of us to take that deeper look into the scriptures and also the words of the prophets and the counsel that they have given us. So in this lesson, if you go to our four-day resource at www.josephsmithfoundation.org slash for our day, we have a section in this lesson where we have listed some resources where you can easily access um, additional teachings from the prophets on different issues and history and important teachings in our day, as well as some other resources about scripture and how to use it in your home and some activities, and then how to take that message out to others. So please use those resources. Also, send us a comment if you know of resources that we haven't included that you think would be really helpful for others. Um, also, other teachings from the prophets. Um, we are building, trying to build a database on our website of all these teachings to make them very organized and accessible to others because, frankly, they've changed our life and we want it to bring hope to others and change their lives as well. So we look forward to hearing from you and we will see you next week as we continue Nephi's vision of the tree of life and what it looks like when Nephi actually sees our day in vision and how the tree of life vision, what it actually looks like in our day.